It is a weighty thing to be here before you this morning to be asked to preach God's perfect word. I'm so privileged, um, so thankful. So thank you. And I just pray Brandon's prayer. Would I pray God would answer it, and I know he will, that God would be glorified through Christ. Let me pray just briefly, briefly from my own heart. Lord, I thank you for your word, which is Jesus, given to us, given for us, crushed, so that we might be made whole, exalted, sitting at your right hand in power, representing us, with us, by faith, your Holy Spirit. Would you fill me to glorify Jesus, to preach the glorious riches of our inheritance in Jesus Christ. Would sinners come to know you this morning? Would saints be edified, encouraged, and exhorted? I pray that this would be me testifying. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning I want to preach to you from Acts 4, verses 5 through 12. It's a pretty short passage. But rich, I want to preach to you on the power of a name, the power of the name of Jesus Christ. Well over a decade ago, I can't remember if it was the Home Depot off of I-10 and Wirt Road, or it might have been the Home Depot in Galveston. I don't know why I can't remember that. It was one of the two. I was in there, and I needed some help, as I usually do. And so there was a really, really helpful, nice uh, worker. He was in a wheelchair, and he had black gloves on. I'll tell you why I remember that in a minute, but he helped me find what I needed. We talked the whole time, and it was kind of a little slower walk around the, around the huge store than normal because he was in a wheelchair, so it was good. We had a good conversation, and we, had, we talked about meaningful things. We talked about faith and, and even Christianity, I think, and just about our own lives and shared some things and shot the breeze, too. And I, I remember we got to the register and I, it's at that point, I guess I hadn't before, but it's at that point that in my witness and in my conversation with him, I mentioned the name Jesus. I just, and I didn't say it like that, like a preacher says it, right? <laughs> I, I didn't say Jesus. He would have been like, I just said Jesus. And I still remember his reaction. Black gloves on his hands, he went like this. He wheeled back from me twice, and his face got flush red. Jesus. We talked about religion. We talked about even Christianity, but when I said the name of Jesus Christ, it was literally like he was repulsed. He was pushed back. There was a power. It was clear to me there was a power in that name. This morning, I want to preach one thing to you, that there is power in Jesus' name. There's power to repulse. There's power to bring us in and to make us like him. And there's power to save. So there's power in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what we learned this morning from our text from Peter and his witness. There's power to repulse, to bring us in and to make us like him. And there's power to save. So when we look at this text this morning, Brandon preached last week on the text just before this where... um, Peter and John are going up to the temple grounds to, to pray, no doubt. And, 
and they encounter a lame man who's been lame, and we, we, we learned from birth, and he's put there every day in front of the gate called Beautiful, one of the, one of the gates on the outside of the temple grounds, the big temple grounds. And he asks them for money, and instead they say, look, we don't have money, but what we do have, we'll give to you. In the name of Jesus, be, be healed. And he gets up, and it says that he, he walks, and he, sk- he leaps, he skips, and, he, and he's just so joyful that he's been made completely well after a whole life of being crippled. And so this text that we find ourselves in this morning is Peter and John being hauled in, being arrested, and then held over for the night because, of what, because they'd made this guy well. And they're hauled in before the religious and political court, Jewish court, the next day. And that's where we find them, being tried like criminals. Um, I want to read verses 5 through 7 again for us just to set the context. Chapter 4. On the next day, verse 5, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the, mit- in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So this, this was the ruling council called the Sanhedrin. It consisted of the lead lawmakers, judges, scholars, pastors of the day. Um, legal, judicial, religious, academic powerhouses. The who's who. They're all, they're all gathered together. They're all assembled in this Sanhedrin. And here we have in front of them Peter and John. Two hillbilly fishermen in the middle uh, of this semicircle after a night's incarceration. Okay, this, this isn't um, just a questioning. This is a trial. It's not an impar- There's no impartial jury. This is 70 men plus one, the high priest. So 71 men, um, and they're in a semicircle so they can see each other. It was designed that way so they could each see each other as they were um, questioning the witness. And they're seated, which is a sign of authority. It's why it says Christ... Christ is seated at the right hand, the hand of power of the Father in heaven. He's, he has all authority now. It's why elders, when they meet, they meet in session, which mean, means seated. They're seated with the power that has been given them by God. They've been selected by the congregation to make decisions to represent the congregation. So these men are seated in power, and their witnesses, Peter and John, these hillbilly fishermen, and this man who's just been healed, so it's ironic, right? Because he's just, all of his life he hasn't been able to stand and now he's being required to stand as a criminal being tried in front of the Sanhedrin, being required to stand and to face this semicircle of 71 rulers. Very intimidating. So that's the context. I want to get into the first point, the power to repulse. There is power in the name of Jesus Christ to repulse. And when we say name here, really it's, it's shorthand for his person and his work, what he came to do, who he is. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return. So verse 2, it's kind of a, when you look at it, 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 there's a bit of comedy, to my mind anyway, as Luke, as Luke writes it. Um, it's a kind of a comic text. So v- verse 2, right before our text, tells us that um, these powers that be, they were greatly annoyed, is, is the way that Luke describes them. They were greatly annoyed. So it's, it's, a, it's a tragic comedy. Um, so... Here they were, John and Peter, preaching, our Savior has been sent to us. We crucified him, but that was actually the way that God chose. He chose to use our evil to provide an apparatus through his own son to save us. He's the Messiah that's come to save our nation. And not only that, but all of mankind. 
He has the power to make this man well and to make us well. And not only that, but he's begun the process of recreation. This is what Messiah had come to do and was prophesied to come to do. And they're saying, he's here. Look, there's proof. This man. And so instead of just over being overjoyed, these men are greatly annoyed. They're greatly annoyed that this man who has been sitting for years and years, no doubt, in front of the temple gate, begging, crippled from birth, is now, is now healed. It's, um, this is the reaction of the world, friends. This will always be the reaction of the who's who, of the power brokers, um, to the power of the name of Jesus Christ. There's a repulsion. There's an annoyance. Verse 7 in the Greek, uh, it ends with the word you. It doesn't in the English, but it ends with the word you. So you being Peter, being John. Um, so again, verse 7 says, And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? So it's a very uh, accusatory question. And the, and the whole sentence, syntactically, the way it's arranged, it just pours into the you. It's like they're pointing their fingers, and they probably they could well have been. Um, why have you healed this man? We demand an answer. And Peter kind of picks up on the comedy and the tragedy of the situation when he says in verse 8, if we're on trial because a man who couldn't walk from birth now can, well, let me tell you why it happened. So they're treated as criminals for, for healing a crippled man. And this is how foolish we look when we oppose the name of Jesus Christ, when we resist the name of Jesus Christ. It's showing us how foolish it is. And it's, it's giving us a clear picture of that foolishness. I think even with some of you in this room today, if you're a non-believer, certainly, and God may be drawing you, and I pray he is, but even as believers, there's, there's still this, this flesh inside of us that's warring against our souls and that hates Jesus. And, and there's this repulsion to his name. And this text is helping us see how just ludicrous it is. It's as ludicrous as these men being greatly annoyed that a man has just been healed. Um, so, so resistance to the name of Jesus Christ, being repulsed by Jesus, is foolish. There in this text, 2,000 years ago, and today in our lives. Um, I want to encourage you to see the repulsion, the power of repulsion in the name of Jesus Christ. If you're feeling some of that this morning, if you felt it in the past, if you go home and you, you feel it at home, you feel it tomorrow morning, you feel it during the week, I want to, especially if you're a skeptic and you haven't yet believed on the name of Jesus Christ, I want this text and this reality of the fact that there is something in us. We don't, a lot of times when, you know, we don't say, if we're using a curse word, we don't use the, invoke the name of Buddha. I've never heard it. Siddhartha, by Siddhartha, or, or Muhammad. I've never heard that. And on we could go of, of Gandhi, of these holy men. But when someone, why do we take the name of Jesus Christ in vain? Because even if we don't know it, there's power there. There's just, there's power in his name. And we're going to get to why in a little bit. Um, but I want for the reality, even of that repulsion, to be an argument to you, an apologetic for the reality that Christ is alive and he reigns in power and to come to him. 
Even, even to analyze that repulsion and to allow it to be an argument in your life to consider that Christ isn't just a name. He's not dead in the ground. He's alive. Just like Peter and John were saying, okay? If you look at verse 7 also, you look um, at that accusation. It says, by what power or what name did you do this? Okay, they knew. Verse 2 tells us they knew it was, they were, these guys were preaching Jesus. They, they knew these guys. They had just crucified Jesus. The same council had just held a sham trial for him weeks before for Jesus. They knew exactly what Peter and John were doing, but they assiduously avoid the name of Jesus. And they even avoid saying healing. They just say, by what power did you do this? It's this really nondescript language. What it's about, I think, is it's about holding on to the power that they already have. It's about keeping the control that they think they have over their lives and over their community. Verse 6 mentions Annas the high priest as being there with Caiaphas, John, and Alexander. Okay, well, Annas hadn't been high priest for 20 years. But I think that uh, commentators say that the high priest was kind of like a title, like president of the United States, where it's just we still call President Bush president, even though he's no longer president. It's a title that's retained, and we'll call Obama president long after he's um, stepped down. So it it was the same. It was the same here. Um, But still, he's here with all of his family trying to retain this power. One commentator writes this. He says, according to the Gospels, Caiaphas was the high priest. Okay, not Annas. Annas, however, had filled the office of high priest for nearly a decade but was deposed by the Roman governor, Valerius. Annas was an influential person who belonged to the Sadducean party and was loath to yield authority. Therefore, by ensuring that members of his family succeeded him, he continued to exert his power and at the same time keep the title of high priest. Five of his sons, as well as his son-in-law Caiaphas and a grandson, were high priests at successive intervals. So he's just stacking the deck ensuring that he and his line stay in power, isn't he? Thus, the family of Annas maintained and consolidated Annas' power in the Sanhedrin. Guys, we all do this. We all want to retain what we see as our control over our lives. But Jesus, he threatens that. He threatens that perceived, we don't have control of our lives. Even if we, if we look at the stars and think about how huge the universe is and how small we are and how today could be my last breath and a car could take me out or a bubble in my brain or whatever it is, we are living precariously fragile lives. But we we like to retain the idea that we're in control and Jesus threatens that. Because when he comes, he says, I gave all of myself for all of you. You're mine now. And you weren't in control before, but I'm telling you now. In fact, Satan was your master. That's what the scriptures say. You were never in control. But now I've given all of myself, and I want all of you. And no one is worthy of me unless he comes after me all the way and doesn't turn back. And that, that threatens us. And, it, and therefore his name, the power of his name and of, his, of, the, of the realness, if I can coin a word, of Jesus, it, it repulses us. We want to keep control. We want desperately to get inside what C.S. Lewis calls the inner ring, the inner ring. Or if we're in the inner ring, in whatever way, it could be school, it could be work, it could be, it could be church, it could be a session, it could be a position in a family, right? We want to stay in it, and we'll do anything we can to stay in it and to keep others out that aren't already in it. 
If we cast stones at these men for looking so foolish, and they do, because we know, we know they're on the wrong side of history. And we can see them treating this man who was crippled like a criminal for being healed. And it's absurd. But the text is showing us our desire to hold on to our own perceived sense of control and to stay in that inner ring is just as foolish. Um, if, we, if we miss that, we're missing the point. Okay, C.S. Lewis in the inner ring, which was a lecture that he gave in 1944 at King's College London. Um, again, it's the craving for all of us to get into an accepted society and stay there and keep others out. Um, toward the end of his paper, he says this, just one sentence. He says, until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider you will remain. Until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider you will remain. Can I tell you that no matter what inner ring we get into, it's never inner enough. It's never exclusive enough. It's never going to satisfy the itch that we have because what we were created for is to be known by God and to be in relationship with God, at peace with God. That's the ultimate inner ring. And until we actually have that, we replace it by being, you know, um, a partner in a high-powered company or of whatever status, right, in the academy, um, in, in our school, in our family, in our home, in our just society, thought of well, whatever it is. That's not ever going to satisfy because it's not inner enough. The fear is always going to be there, always. It's this deep brokenness inside of us, and Jesus came to heal that, and Jesus came to fix that, and Jesus came to bring us in. Because Jesus, and this is what Peter preaches, he was in the inner, the ultimate inner ring, in heaven, in the Trinity, the fellowship of Father, Son, and Spirit. And he is the inheritor, the only inheritor of all of creation and all that the Father has to give. And he left that, Philippians 2. He emptied himself, not of divinity, by no means. Remaining fully God, he emptied himself of all privilege and came down here and was born a poor infant. Fully human, rejected by his people. Crucified on a cross and buried so that we could get what he gave up to draw us in. And until we latch on to that, guys, we are going to be offended by Christ and we are going to repulse him and we are going to keep clawing and scratching in our lives. It's going to be the driving force, Lewis says, to get into this inner ring and to keep others out. But once we understand that Christ came to bring us in through no good of our own, just to bring us in through his work, these fears, the scratching and clawing, it dissipates. And the more as... Tim Keller, a preacher in New York, is fond of saying, the more the penny drops, because it, it drops to some degree when we trust in Christ, doesn't it? And we trust in what he's done for us, that he's given himself up and divested himself of privilege to bring us into privilege, to bring us into the family of God. And that, that penny drops, and that's when we say, Jesus, I believe in you, I trust in you, you died for me, I need you. But to some degree, that has to drop every day, successively throughout our lives. So now speaking with you believers, And to the degree that that actually takes hold in our heart and we believe it and we understand it with our minds and our hearts and our affections and our will, it will free us from the fears that grip us. 
We don't have to be, we're no longer competing to be part of any inner circle because we are part of the inner circle, the ultimate inner ring. And man, you can smell that. You can see that freedom on somebody a mile away. And I know it's one of the things that drew people to Christ and that repulsed them and that scared the heck out of them. So be encouraged. There is power in Jesus' name, power to repulse. And secondly, there's power to bring us in and to make us like him. There's power to bring us in and make us like him. Okay? There's power to bring us in. The gospel of Jesus Christ is utterly, yes, Jesus is the one way, he's the only way to be saved and to come to the Father. And we'll, we'll finish with that. But he offers himself freely to anyone who will come. Anyone. Anyone at all. Class distinctions, ethnicity, uh, language barriers. It's all raised to the ground. We're all on equal footing before God. And Christ Jesus died for all of us. And he op- that's why I think that's one of the reasons his arms were open wide on the cross. Because it's a symbol in our minds to us that come to me all. Like he said, all ye who labor and toil, and are weary, and heavy laden, and I shall give you rest. The only condition is that we come. That's it. Anyone. Um, All sorts from every area of the known world in this text, at this time, are being saved. So it's, it's just an indication to us of the truth of this principle. Just as the name of Jesus repulses all sorts of men in its power, drawing people of various stripes who would not normally come together, so does it draw all men to Jesus. And Jesus said it would irresistibly. Um, Peter speaks in verse 11 of Jesus as the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Okay, what's he talking about? Well, first of all, Peter is talking, he's taking from a psalm written centuries before, Psalm 118, and he's applying it to Jesus. So this psalm was written hundreds of years previously, but Peter's saying, oh, Jesus fulfilled that. That was written about him. Um, it was written about him all along, actually. It's the reason it was written. Um, this is actually the hermeneutic. This is the, way, this is the way that Jesus and the New Testament writers read the entire Old Testament, okay? With Jesus as its fulfillment, as its, uh, as its reason. Much as water fills up a cup, so the cup was designed for one thing, to be filled by water, so Peter, the other apostles, those who wrote the New Testament, and Jesus, that following Jesus' lead, say... The, way, the reason the Old Testament exists, the reason the scriptures that they called at the time, the scriptures were the Old Testament, the reason the scriptures exist, the reason the word of God exists is one reason, to be filled up by Jesus. The scriptures were written to point to Jesus. This psalm, written centuries before, says um, that a stone in a building will be rejected by the builders. It'll just be, ah, it's marred, it's unimpressive, this is not part of our plan, get it out of here, put it on the rubbish heap. But that very stone will actually become the cornerstone. The stone that the entire building is built on. And if you take that stone out, everything falls. That's what this prophecy says. And Peter says, that's Jesus. You're the builders. I mean, again, he's visualized it, right? It's not too hard for me, at least, with this semicircular uh, arrangement I'm looking at. He's saying, you're the builders. You're the who's who. You're the power brokers. This text is speaking of you. You've rejected Christ. You crucified him. But guess what? God used that. And he's building his church. And through his church, he's going to build his kingdom. And his kingdom's going to cover the whole earth. And then Christ is going to come again. That's what Peter's saying. Amen. 
So, this stone was rejected by the builders who were the inner ring of the time. And Jesus, his whole ministry was rejected by the inner ring, which is one of the reasons he hung out on the fringes. He knows what it's like to be rejected. Not only by, listen to this, guys, not only by the inner ring as we know it, the intelligentsia of the day, but by the ultimate inner ring that I spoke of earlier. He knows what it's like to be rejected by God the Father. Because the fact is, that's what we deserve. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. There's not, no one righteous, not one. Psalm 14, I read it this morning. And 53 again. There's no one righteous, not one. And what we deserve for our rebellion is separation from God forever, which means death, because God is life. Jesus took that rejection into himself. He became that rejection for us on the cross. It's why he said, amongst other things, my God, my God, why have you, what, forsaken me? As truly as Christ was forsaken, so truly as we trust in him are we brought in. So truly will we never be left, no matter what we're going through right now, no matter what we've been through, no matter what we will go through. He knows what it's like to be rejected, to be low. He has become, it says, instead of being a rejected stone, he's actually become the cornerstone. A couple of things about a cornerstone. First of all, it's low, right? It's, everything else is built on it. It's not the apex. To be fair, some commentators think this could mean the keystone, but it probably means the cornerstone, the low stone. Well, the low stone, is, it's, it's at the bottom. So again, it reinforces the idea that Christ went low in his incarnation. He divested himself of everything. In the ancient Near East, to get to God, civilizations would build towers of whatever sorts. So you have, in a sense, you have Babel in Genesis 11. But throughout the ancient Near East, we have, um, we have remnant, remnants of ziggurats, or like temples of various temples on hills. And in Athens still today, we have various temples that were built, the Acropolis, on top of hills, always on top of hills, getting close to heaven as possible. And it was like, that was a portal that priest and the king of the society would go up to, and they would be the conduit to bring God down. They would be the, the mediator between God and man. They would go up, 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 up. If you were a lowly person, you just stayed down, down, down. But not Jesus. Jesus doesn't go up top. He goes down. Even as he chooses to be the fundamental stone on which everything else is built, without, no, without which nothing else will stand, he goes low. He goes low all the way to the cross. And indeed, the cross reminds us, doesn't it, that Jesus actually was lifted up. But not, not to be above everybody, but lifted up on the cross. Even in his being lifted up, Jesus displays his utter humility. And again, and lastly on the cornerstone, this cornerstone of what building is it speaking of in Psalm 118? It's speaking of the temple. And again, the temple was the place where God and man met. And Peter, in another letter later in the New Testament says, uh, well, Luke wrote this, but Peter features, right? Peter, in, in his letter to the church, one of his letters to the church says that we actually are the temple, that God is building. We're the living stones that God is building as we trust in Christ. And Jesus 
He is that cornerstone, and we're built into him and onto him. So this fellowship that we have, we have it built into the living God through Jesus Christ. And we are becoming the place where God resides, and the place through which mankind finds peace with God. And that is very good news. And again, it just means that um, he's bringing us to himself. So we, don't, we can let go of this scratching and clawing to be inside, because Jesus brings us all the way in. But it also has the power to make us like him. Okay, just a few things um, before we move on to point three. Um, the name of Jesus has the power to make us like him. We see this all throughout this text. In John 16, Jesus, he's trying to encourage the disciples because he's about to be crucified. And then he says, look, I'm going to leave. I'm going back to the father. And they get all sad as they should have, right? But he says, hey, don't be sad because guess what? Unless I go back, I'm not going to send you the helper. But when I go, I'll send you the helper and it'll be better better for you that I go. And they didn't really get that. It's like, why would it be better? But when Jesus was here, and if he were still here today, here's the deal. He would just be here or here or there. He'd be with us, but not in us. But when Jesus went to the father, he sent the helper just like he promised. And that's what Pentecost is about. And that incidentally is one reason that the disciples were so jazzed, if I can use that word, stoked, just on fire, literally, right? (laughs) when he sent his spirit down, because what did they know? They knew that Jesus had gotten there. He'd gotten to the right hand of the Father. He now had all authority representing them, and he was giving them that authority. That's what the spirit in us means. It's that deposit that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of power, and he uses everything, sin, evil, disease, everything, to bring about his purposes for salvation and for judgment. So it's kind of like Obi-Wan Kenobi. I mean, gosh, I just made that transition, didn't I? We need a breather. It's kind of like Obi-Wan. I got to go back all the way to the original Star Wars. Yeah, all the way back. I mean, 1977, you young pups probably have never even seen the original. But if you have, there's a great scene in there where it's a sad scene, just like Jesus leaving, but Obi-Wan, okay, not just like. (laughs) Forgive me, Lord. (laughs) Kind of like. Obi-Wan, he's doing the and he's got his lightsaber with Darth Vader, and they're in the Death Star or some big spaceship. And he says, if you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. That great, that great British accent. And, uh, you know, he just kind of does this, and Darth Vader takes a whack, and he just disappears. His cloak's all that's left. And, you know, his force ends up strengthening the force of Luke Skywalker who ends up, you know, taking the Republic back and all that. And more movies, obviously, have been made, unfortunately, since then. <laughs> the last three in particular. I hear the, I hear the new one coming out is going to be good, though. So there's a plug. Um, but Jesus said something similar, didn't he? But more powerful and more awesome. And that is that when I go, I'm going to send you, I'm going to be inside of each of you through my Holy Spirit. And we really see that in this text. We see so many similarities between Jesus and his being tried and his his power of his words and Peter and his courage and Peter. Um, So just a few of them. And these are proofs, guys, that Jesus isn't dead, but that he's alive. These are proofs of his resurrection and his having sent his spirit and reigning from heaven. Uh, And they're also proofs that when we look at Peter, what we're seeing is not just a disciple that is uh, 
defending Jesus or trying to emulate Jesus, but a disciple who, in a sense, is Jesus Christ. The, the pr- little presence of Christ is flowing through him to other people. And that's what we are. That's what I want to take away from this point, is that just as Peter was the presence of Christ and he was the mediator of Jesus Christ himself to other people for judgment, for repulsion, and for drawing people in, so are we. We're the fragrance of Christ to some and we're the stench of Christ to others. And as believers, we just need to be okay with that because Christ, he is a dividing line. He will separate households. It's what he told us. Um, so proofs that Peter is alive quickly. Just um, So Jesus said, they're going to treat you multiple times. He said to the disciples and to us, they're going to treat you just like they treated me. Okay, here's case in point. Same exact thing is happening. Um, similar trial. Almost all the same people that were at Jesus' sham trial at night are here at this slightly less sham trial, but pretty much still sham, in the morning. Because the, the rules, the Jewish rules said you can't have a trial at night. So that's why it's slightly less sham. They waited till the morning, but it's still ridiculous. Same trial, same people, same result, same foolishness. That's not an accident. Okay, um, these men, Peter and John, healed in Jesus' name, just like Jesus had done when he was here. Peter was, before Jesus was crucified, what did Peter do right before Jesus was crucified? Yeah, he denied, he denied him three times. What is he doing here? The exact opposite. He's super bold and fearless, just like Jesus, because this is Jesus in Peter. It's the Holy Spirit. So he was fearless. Um, they're asked the same question Jesus was by the same people. Matthew twenty one twenty three says, And when he entered the temple, speaking of Jesus, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Sixthly, they were uneducated, blue-collar workers from the hills, fishermen from Galilee, just like Jesus, carpenter from Galilee. And they knew the scripture better than their educated, super-educated opponents. Peter's speech was full of the Old Testament, just like Jesus. His, this, this text is basically Peter giving Old Testament quotes and then just explaining them. That's so much of the way Jesus spoke. Like in the, in the desert when he was tempted, what did he do to repulse Satan? He gave three, three lines from the Old Testament law from Deuteronomy 6 and 8. Spurgeon said, if you cut Jesus, he bleeds bibline. He made that word up. Uh, but it's a great word. If you cut Jesus... And, I mean, he illustrates that on the cross, doesn't he? Jesus, when he's dying, in the exquisite shock and awe and pain of the cross, when you are in a situation like that, you get in a car crash, and the first thing you say isn't rehearsed. It's just whatever's in your guts. And what was in Jesus' guts is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22.1 and other bits of Scripture. Um, Jesus spoke just like Peter did here, and that's for a reason. And finally, Peter confounded his accusers, didn't he, by turning the tables on them. So they're accusing him, and he's saying, well, if I'm being accused for uh, healing, if we're being accused for healing a man, a crippled man, making him well and up on his feet, then here's why. Jesus does something similar. Like John 10, 32, he says, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? It's one of my favorite lines. It's just so full of humor. It's like, I've done a lot of good stuff. I've healed folks. I've preached the good news. Which of these are you stoning me for again? I mean, same comedy, same 
perceptiveness and incisiveness, it's Jesus. Um, Matthew 10, 17 through 20. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you, do not be anxious for how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Here it is. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Guys, this is Jesus alive, just as he said, speaking through these men. And I want to encourage you. It's the same when you speak by faith in the name of Jesus Christ. We are Christ himself to people, and there is power there. A disciple of Jesus doesn't just emulate him. He brings Jesus and his presence to those he encounters, sometimes for repulsion and sometimes for attraction. Okay, so there's power in Jesus' name, power to repulse, to bring us in and to make us like him, and lastly, to save. There's power to save. If we look at verse 10, I'm going to read it. It says this, let it be known to all of you and to all the people, this is Peter, of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. I just want to take a few minutes to just each of these terms in this last phrase. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Briefly on these terms that Peter uses. Jesus. Okay? Jesus meant, it was a common name, first of all. It was common. Jesus, it speaks so much of who Jesus was. You couldn't pick him out in a crowd. He was common in that sense. He was exceptional as a son of God, but he was a man. He worked with wood for 25 years of his life. He picked a common Jewish name like Tom or, you know, Will or something. Taylor's a little bit less, a little bit more eccentric. It's a girl's name now, unfortunately. That's really sad. (laughs) Thanks, Mom and Dad, who are here right now. I love my name. Common name, but what does it mean? Yeshua, God saves. That's what Jesus means, and that's what it means because that's what Jesus is. He's God as a common man, fully human, representing us before the Father. And he alone saved. Even his disciples fled. Nobody helps God. God saves. That's it. Stop your, sal- your salvation projects and just come to Jesus because he can save you. Just come. Okay, Christ. Christ is the Greek form of Mashiach, of Messiah in the Hebrew. It's the one that the scriptures pointed to. It's the one who is going to save Israel, save God's people, restore them into right relationship with God, and then save all of creation. Restore everything. Once all of God's children are saved. Then the end will come. Christ is going to return. And he's going to remake everything. It's this Jesus who's going to just, he's going to make things right. So creation's groaning right now. I, I was driving here this morning and I drove past a gray cat that had its head smashed on the concrete. It was really sad. He's on our street. I don't know if y'all saw it, but dead cat. It's like, man, that stinks. I mean, yeah, I, like, I actually like cats. I was, I was tempted to say there, I don't like cats too much because that's kind of a macho thing. But even, even if I didn't like cats, I would still feel bad for that darn cat. Dead cats, heads smushed in the street, okay? Not supposed to happen. Sad. Just, yeah. That's, that's, it's not right, even if you don't like cats. 
Okay, on to something much more serious. Earthquake in Nepal. Tons of people dead, tons of people still suffering, tons of rebuilding, so much grief, not supposed to happen. We all just know this. Okay, personal. The way I neglect my family and have this week for the purpose of ministry and of work, the way I lose my temper, hurt my kids, hurt my wife, not supposed to happen. Creation is groaning. We are groaning. And what Jesus says to us, what Christ, what Jesus Christ, the Messiah, says to us is, that's not going to last forever. I've come to begin the restoration process. And in the words of Sam Gamgee, right, from Lord of the Rings, everything sad, everything sad is going to come untrue. And that is a great hope for us. Of Nazareth. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Here, Peter's accentuating the hillbilliness of Christ, right? Nazareth was in the hills. And look, he was a carpenter. He was from the hill country. He had an accent. He had a, he had a country Aramaic accent. He had probably his mom's nose. He was truly born of a virgin, of, of a woman, of Mary. He probably had his mom's nose, tan skin, shoulder-length hair. He did not wear a white tunic, cloak. I don't know where. I'm so, it's one of my pet peeves when we see the movies and he's got like this stepped out of the salon kind of hair, and he's sort of glowing, Shekinah, and he's got this white robe on. It's just, just like he's gotten it washed every day and bleached. Okay, it, you couldn't pick Jesus out from a crowd. His name was Yeshua, Joshua, Tom, Will, whatever. He was normal in that sense. He was fully human because we're fully human, and we need someone to step in our place as a fully human man, as a normal person, and to take the punishment we deserve. It's what Jesus did. And finally, sorry, second to last, whom you crucified. Peter says, whom you crucified. Again, Jesus had to represent us at his death. He had to be fully man because we men and women deserve what he got. And that's one of the things that the cross tells us. It tells us how much we hate God, how much we resist God, how much we're repulsed by God. And yet God uses this very thing to save us. He uses this very thing to save us because If Jesus didn't pay in our place, we have to pay. And if we don't trust in Christ and hide in him by faith, we will pay. That's what the scriptures clearly teach. John 3.36, for whoever doesn't hide in Christ, the wrath of God will abide on him. That's our end. Either we all, their payment has to be made for our rebellion against God because he's just. Either we pay or Christ pays for us. That's what Peter's talking about here. And sin isn't just something we do, it's who we are. It weaves itself into our being. We're sinners, the Bible says. So Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.21, what? He became sin for us because that is just vicarious justice. It's punishment that we, we will be eternally taken apart in our very selves. We will eternally perish and be undone in hell, separate from God, unless we run to Christ because he has already had that done to him on the cross. And finally, he says, whom God raised from the dead. Friends, briefly, Romans 4.25 tells us that Christ was raised, why? For our justification. Which means we were made completely right before God. In a court of law, we were declared not guilty, but free. Everything's been paid for. What, what Paul's telling us is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that we can go free because God said their sins have been fully paid for. You're free to go. And when he rose from the dead, it meant that we too, as we trust in him, we're free. We're free from the penalty of death and sin.
And then finally, Peter says, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. So just as inclusive as the gospel is, as we said, it's, it's utterly exclusive in that there's only one way. There's salvation under no other name. There aren't many roads up the mountain. It's just in Jesus Christ. And Peter doesn't say there's only one name by which you may be saved or can be saved. What does he say? Must. He says there's only one name by which you must be saved. Two things. Must be saved, meaning Christ has paid the full penalty for our sin if we trust in him. When you trust in him, God is obligated by his justice. And we're told this in 1 John 1 verse 9. If we're faithful and just, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Because he's just, if we trust in Christ, Christ is already paid. We can't, there's no double jeopardy. We can't pay twice for the same sin. It's been paid for. We're free to go. We must be saved if we trust in Jesus' name. And there's a compulsion here, a moral compulsion. Jesus has been given to us by the Father, the only Son of God, to be crushed. If there were any other way for us to be saved, friends, if we could do enough, scrub ourselves up enough, do enough penance, do enough good things, believe rightly enough, have enough faith, if we could do any of these things to please God, enough to be in his presence and to be brought into his family, he would not have crushed his son. There is a compulsion in the fact that he sent his own son to die for us that says there's no other way. You come, and you come right now. The first time Jesus came in weakness to save, guys, we have a short time to run to him. When he comes again, he's coming in power. And if we haven't run to him, then he comes in judgment. I want to encourage you that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Believe on him. He's given enough proof. He is alive, okay? I I opened with a story about that encounter that I had where that man was repulsed by Christ, and I want to end with a story, just for good measure, of, of a man that I met with in Charlotte, North Carolina, that was not repulsed but drawn to Christ and changed, made like Jesus and saved. Um... I was doing chaplaincy duty in seminary where I went in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, and it was all-nighter, and I'm not a night, I mean, I need sleep, man. So I was, woo, I was hurting. I was drinking coffee, and God bless those chaplains that do that, and it'd be a good thing for, for us to do on a regular basis probably, but hurting people, man. And one of the guys that I uh, met with, we met in a room, closed off, one-on-one. His head was down the whole time. His head was down the whole time. He was full of shame. He had just committed adultery like a week before. And he said, he told me the whole story. He was full of regret and shame, but no repentance because he didn't know the name of Jesus. And he, after the act of adultery, he went outside and threw up in the grass. He just wretched. He just, he felt so sick to his stomach and he knew he had done wrong. And he was so, so sorry. And he had no hope. And literally, I didn't see his eyes hardly the whole time. And I just started, I listened, and then I just started telling him, Jesus saves, brother. He took all of that upon himself and into himself for you to be free. He saves sinners. That's the only kind of people he saves, is sinners. He don't save people that think they're righteous. He saves sinners. Can I tell you that we prayed, and that man prayed with me and after me, and when we looked up, this dude was a different person. He was looking at me straight up, 
eyes locked on mine. He was like glowing. I could swear to you, it seemed like he was two feet, two inches off the ground. He was so full of joy and happiness and something had been literally, something had been taken off of him. And I'll tell you who took it. Jesus. Jesus took that weight for him and he's taken it for us if we will come to him. And man, I thought about that Psalm 3.3 that says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. So you're the one that takes the hit instead of me, right? My glory and what? The lifter of my head. Okay. <clears throat> Jesus, the pa- there's power in the name of Jesus to repel, to bring us in and make us like him. And there's power to save. Let me pray.